the one golden thread that runs through the hearts and minds of all humankind. And it would seem to be as true today as it was two and a half thousand years ago on the eve of the Buddha's enlightenment. With the great power of his mind, it is said that he reviewed the countless births and deaths of human beings and saw that the one thing that was true for all of them was their deep yearning to be happy. And what he also saw as clearly was that people were living their lives in ways that made it impossible. We all want so much to be happy. I'd like to ask you for a moment to reflect on what it is the deepest yearning of your own heart. A really serious question. What is it deep down that you most wish and yearn for in your life? A really important question. What is it that you most want for yourself? There's one further question. How is it that you go about in your life creating that which you most wish for? If it is happiness or fulfillment or peace or contentment, how is it that you create these blessings in your life? Tonight I'd like to talk about the laws of happiness. A very integral part of the enlightenment experience of the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago. These laws are very simple and at the same time enormously profound and so complicated in their ramifications also. In his teaching, the Buddha said there were four things that you shouldn't think about too much. He called them the imponderables. And he said, if you think about them too much, you'll go nuts. <laughs> the four things that he said not to think about too much, first of all, was he said, don't think about the mind of a Buddha. 
He said, because nobody can really understand it. He said, it's a waste of time. He also said, don't think too much about the power of a concentrated mind. He said, because it is only such a mind that can understand itself. The third thing he says is, don't waste too much time thinking about the beginning of things, where this all began, what was the start. He said, it'll drive you crazy. And the last thing he said was, don't try and fully understand the laws of karma. He said, because it is impossible. He said, only the mind of a fully enlightened being, someone with a Buddha mind, could really understand the enormous ramifications of karma. What I'd like to do this evening is speak very briefly about karma. I feel somewhat protected by the fact that if we talk too much about it, it can make us crazy. I'd like to speak about karma in the context of the meditation practice that we do here and also in the context of our lives, how these laws of happiness work in the practice and how they work in our lives. The meditation practice is, of course, what prepares us for a life of awakening and for a life of awareness. So really there is no difference between the practice of meditation and our lives. The Buddha said, if we want to know our past, look in the present. He said, if we want to know our future, look in the present. If we want to know our past, understand our present. And if we want to know the future, be aware of our present. He said that everything that we do has an effect and the law of karma is in its simplest form the law of cause and effect. Now how does this work? Think for a moment. If you act with generosity, with compassion and with loving, how does that feel? For me it feels Bodily, there's a feeling of ease, a feeling of receptivity. It's a feeling of brightness and connectedness if I act or think in that way. Cause and effect. Similarly, if we use words or actions or have thoughts that are vindictive or angry or divisive, what is the feeling in the body and in the heart at those times. For me, there's a feeling of separation, a feeling of complexity and confusion, a tightness and constriction perhaps too, cause and effect. Really, everything that we do seems to echo in our hearts and minds and bodies. And as our sensitivity deepens with the meditation practice, we become aware of these echoes so much more sensitively, so much more acutely. 
And we come to realize that there really is nothing haphazard or chaotic about our lives. That it is the nature of things that everything is very ordered. That there really is nothing that is out of control. How does it work in the meditation practice? Perhaps you've seen that we can have a thought and the next moment there can be fear. The fear conditioned by the thought. A cause and effect. Perhaps there might be a sound, say a pretty sound of a bird, and immediately there is joy. A cause and effect. And it's very important to begin to understand how one aspect of our experience can and does condition another. Say for example you were doing walking meditation outside and you saw somebody eating an ice cream. It might immediately arise in the mind the thought, ice cream. That will give rise to the next thing which is craving. And maybe after the craving there will be another thought that will say, I must have that. And then another thought that says, well, let's go. And the next thing you're moving and you're walking towards the refrigerator. On one level it sounds really quite funny. But on another level it really is just a sequence of cause and effects. The mind conditioning the body, conditioning the mind. Very ordered. Not chaotic at all. And it can get very subtle, and as the practice deepens, one of the most liberating insights is the insight into the orderliness of our experience. In the fall last year, I sat a long retreat, a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barry. And the initial part of the retreat, this part of my body in the abdominal area felt like lead. And each time I would sit, and it seems like it was weeks, maybe even months, it was like lead meditation. It's like my attention would go, and it was just solid. And it was so painful. And I just sat with this, and the awareness was as detached as possible. And I was just with my lead meditation. And I was sitting there, sitting there. And one day, all of a sudden, it was like this petal opened. And I related to this then, not so much as lead, but as a blossom, say a lotus blossom, that was really tight. And these petals began to open, one after the other. After being present for a long time, just this opening began to happen. And the more this blossom opened, the more this huge wave of fear began to pour through me. It was like a hose pipe had been turned on. And I just sat with that, all of this fear going through. So the the blossom opened and then there was this fear. And then I began to see that there was this gridlock of constriction around that fear. It was almost like somebody was putting their finger over the end of the hosepipe and making it so much stronger. So my awareness then went to this gridlock of constriction, of aversion to the fear. And I stayed with that and that slowly started to dismantle until right at the bottom was just this tiny little bubbling fear. Just little bubbles of fear. 
And I was able to stay with that, and that was really the easiest of all. And then it just disappeared, and there was nothing. From those gentle little bubbles to this lead, seemed like such a long distance. But it was really no more than a series of cause and effects in my body and in my mind, conditioning one another. It was such a teaching for me. Demystifying the body. Being much less a victim of what is difficult is really one of the liberating aspects of seeing our experience as a sequence of cause and effects. Developing that quality of bare attention that I spoke of during the meditation instructions is so important to beginning to see how karma is at work in our lives, both inside of ourselves and outside of ourselves. If we want to know our history, look in the present moment. If we want to know our future, be in the present moment too. There are two qualities of mindfulness, two aspects of mindfulness that are particularly important in considering how karma is at work in our lives. The first one is a quality of mind called clear comprehension. Clear comprehension is that quality of mind that enables us to clearly understand what it is that is happening in each moment of time. When we're walking, clearly comprehending that we're walking when we're sitting, clearly understanding that we're sitting. Really very simple, clear comprehension. And the second is if we can have this quality of clear comprehension, we can then have what is called suitability of purpose, enabled to respond to whatever it is that is happening in a suitable and skillful way is the second quality of mindfulness that is very important. Clear comprehension, suitability of purpose. In the suitability of purpose enables us to respond to whatever it is that is happening with wisdom and with compassion. So in a very real way, mindfulness creates happiness in our lives. and opens up the possibilities of deeper levels of healing and different dimensions of purification that are not there if the mindfulness is not strong. For if the mindfulness is not there, one moment of anger conditions further anger. If the mindfulness is weak, a moment of fear does condition further fear. A moment of hurtfulness can condition further hurtfulness. And this gives some insight into what it is that we call personalities. As I believe most of you, or perhaps all of you know, that one of the most profound insights of the Buddha 
during his enlightenment experience was that he saw that there was <coughs> nothing on any level, either inwardly or outwardly, that wasn't in a state of change. There's nothing permanent, within or without. And to some extent, we all know that in the meditation practice. We see the enormous change that is going on. So we know perhaps to some extent intellectually and some extent from our experience that really in the end there is no Gavin. There is no abiding self. Well what is it then that we call the personality? We say she is an angry person. He is a fearful person. She is a joyful person. On the personality level, it seems clear that what we are is a unique, changing, recognizable pattern of elements. A changeable, changing pattern of elements. And this comes about because consciously or subconsciously, we've cultivated certain states of mind which over time have become habitual in our lives, have become stronger. As personalities, who we are is a collection of tendencies of mind that have passed. Anger conditions further anger, and so perhaps at some point our personalities might be termed angry or fearful. The law of karma works on so many levels and in so many ways. But it's wonderful to begin to see that these things called personalities are really not cast in stone. That in any moment there is the most profound opportunity for change. One moment of fearlessness does condition further moments of fearlessness. We no longer are a victim of our circumstances. The imperative to take responsibility for our lives and the way we live them seems to be ever increasingly the most important question as we consider how it is that karma operates both within and outside of ourselves. Philip Kaplow, Zen master in upstate New York, he says, our horizons would expand and our lives take on fresh meaning if we began training ourselves to see that even the minutest events in our life have karmic significance. We would gain a new awareness of our own power and dignity, even as we would become more humble for we would realize that we are not isolated fragments thrown into a universe by capricious fate, but one vast ocean in which all currents intermingle. Wonder and joy would replace boredom and frustration. The laws of happiness, the law of karma, becomes even more subtle 
When the Buddha spoke about karma, he said that karma is volition. Volition is that moment of intention or motivation before an action. So quite simply what he was saying is that if I'm driving along a road and I inadvertently run over a squirrel, say, he said, if it was not my intention to harm that squirrel, no karmic energy is released. He said, however, if I'm sitting there and there's a mosquito that is irritating me and I slap the mosquito and perhaps miss it, the fact that I missed that mosquito really doesn't matter. In my heart, there was an intention to be harmful and that in and of itself is what releases the karmic consequence. Volition is that mental urge or stimulation before an action. And in the meditation practice, as it deepens, one can become aware of every intention that precedes an action. And the possibilities of being aware of one's intention are the possibilities of so much more freedom in our life being really careful and aware of what our intentions are before we act in the world. I'd like to give you some examples, some further examples of individual karma, which I won't discuss because there really isn't enough time, but just to share with you so that you can get some understanding of the enormous scope and importance of this teaching of karma. There's what is known, and remember the Buddha said that we could go nuts if we spoke about it too much. The Buddha spoke of fixed karma. We're all born with fixed karma. Some of us are born women, some of us are born men. Some are born black and some are born white. Our parents also, fixed karma for the duration of this lifetime. And then there's variable karma. Two of us can be sent to prison and be in identical cells. One person can decide to use that time to practice, a spiritual practice, to beautify their hearts and minds. Another person might choose to spend that time plotting revenge and retribution. Variable karma, the same situation, the karma is variable and different. There's immediate karma, where we put our hand in the fire and it's burnt, cause and effect, straight away. And then there's what is known as delayed karma. The what we do, what we do, is like planting seeds that ripen and bear fruit later in our lives. If, for example, we abuse our bodies now, the fruits of that perhaps will manifest later in our lives. These laws are so complicated and so vast and yet so simple. I hope that to some extent you're getting an appreciation of that. When I first heard the teachings of the Buddha, this was a quote that inspired me most. I've read it before, I want to read it again. The Buddha said, Believe nothing merely because you have been told it, or because it is traditional, or because you yourself imagined it. 
Do not believe what your teacher tells you, merely out of respect for your teacher. But whatever way by thorough examination you find to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures, that path follow like the moon follows the path of the stars. And in the spirit of this teaching of the Buddha, I want to move ahead to a further discussion of the ramifications of karma. Because it is true that the teaching of karma also involves different realms of existence and also the question of rebirth from life to life. What would be, and this is an important question, what would be a helpful attitude that keeps us open to levels of understanding that are perhaps beyond our present understanding. In talking about karma and these realms of existence, perhaps a suspension of disbelief, where we are caught neither by a blind belief or a blind disbelief would be really helpful. And so I ask you just to have perhaps that quality of mind as I talk further. As regards karma though, one thing is so important and that is how we relate to the present moment. Karma is not punishment. If I blame the tragedies in my life, my ill health perhaps, my crises and my losses on the irretrievable past, I am immobilized. I am filled with guilt. I am filled with shame. I feel helpless. There is a sense of fatalism and a victim. That is just another prison. So how we relate to this question of karma is so important. It's not a punishment. I've told you before that I spent a long while as a monk, uh, a Buddhist monk, and at one time I was having considerable difficulty with my back, and I couldn't walk at that time, and I was lying in bed. And one of the other monks came to me, and he leant down, and he put his one hand on the one side of my head, and his other hand on the other side, and he looked into my eyes, and he said to me, you must have done something terrible. <laughs> to have deserved this, and I just withered away in my bed. <laughs> it was totally unhelpful. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> How we relate to our present is really where the possibility of freedom is. And the Buddha said, if we want to understand our past, be present. If we want to understand our future, be present. A couple of weeks ago, I attended a gathering. It was actually at the time of the last sitting group. And at this gathering, there were about 150 people there, some of whom were caregivers of people with AIDS, and some of the people that were there were people with the virus themselves. And some of us were both people with the virus and caregivers. It was 
an enormous privilege to be there. And what was most wonderful for me was every evening we would sit around and bear witness to one another's stories. People would just share how it was for them, how their lives were. And I want to share with you a few of these stories because I feel that they're very, very pertinent to what we're talking about this evening. I remember Tanya, who is a black woman, an African-American. She weighed 70 pounds and had just come out of hospital where she'd been for five months. Her five children had been taken away from her, but her spirit was so strong. She is so beautiful. And my mind just began spinning out, why, why? Not how she got the virus, because that's clear, we know that, it's simple. But why? And then there was Bruce, a young man, early 20s, bright cheeks, dealing with excruciating pain in his body. So young. And it's like the same question was just going off in my mind. And then there was Margie. She first got sick in 1979 and then very sick in 1984 and she was still so much alive 11 years later, exuberant and happy with some pain. But this radiant being and the same question, why, why, why? There was so much pain in me. And so it went from person to person, these incredible testimonials of people living their lives that were so difficult and yet so full. And I saw that each time I got inextricably enmeshed in this question of why, I was separating myself from the teachings that I was receiving from these people. Because to the extent that I was caught in asking this question why, to which there really is no answer, unless perhaps we have the mind of a Buddha or the mind of someone who is highly psychically developed, that it's really an irrelevant question. And when I entered each moment and was present with the pain and with the suffering and with the joys of each of these people, that I was able to contribute my measure of compassion and loving kindness and care. It was a wonderful teaching. I really got what the Buddha meant when he said that it can drive you nuts thinking about these things too much. Just be present. That really is the greatest protection that we have. I'd like to again briefly share with you a, further, a few further configurations of the law of karma. It is said that there are four different aspects of karma that come into force at the moment of our death. And this is very important because these karmic forces apparently determine what level of existence we're going to be reborn in in terms of Buddhist cosmology. The realms of existence, there are six of them. The first four are the hell realms. They're very, very difficult, apparently. And uh, people suffer a lot in, in these four realms. And the next one is the heaven realms. 
that are supposed to be wonderful. They're beings of light there, they're celestial music, people are radiant, their bodies are filled with light and color. And then between these two, between the heaven and the hell realms, is the human realm. And what is special about the human realm is that in the hell realms, there's no possibility of practicing the spiritual life. It's too difficult. And in the heaven realms, there really is also no possibility because it's so, diff- it's so wonderful there. Nobody really wants to practice. So the human realm <laughs> that runs between these two is the one place where there's a mixture of both the heaven realms and the hell realms. And for that reason, being born as we have done this time, according to Buddhist cosmology, is very precious. Our human birth is very precious because it gives us the opportunity to beautify our hearts and minds, which is what we're doing, so that we can come to know greater freedom. Human birth is so precious and not to be wasted, the Buddha said again and again. So what are these different karmic forces at the moment of death? The first is called, and I'm not going to speak in detail here, the first is called weighty karma, which can either be wholesome or unwholesome. According to the scriptures, it's not a good idea to either kill a Buddha (laughs) (laughs) or to kill your mother. Because these are regarded as unwholesome weighty karma and these will come into force immediately at the moment of death and they will dispatch you down. (laughs) And there's wholesome weighty karma and that is uh, if you practice meditation and you develop your mind. Then um, according to cosmology you can only go up. And if there is no weighty karma then proximate karma comes into effect. And proximate karma is the force of karma uh, arising out of the actions immediately prior to death. And this is why in the scriptures you'll see again and again that the time of dying is a very precious and important time of our lives. And that if we can do that with consciousness and with presence and with loving kindness in our heart, the possibilities karmically are enormous. And so this is why for some people the issue of drugs and other substances that might cloud one's consciousness at this very precious time are very, very important questions. So there's weighty karma. If there's no weighty, then there's proximate karma. If there's no proximate karma, then there's what is called habitual karma. The karma arising out of those habits of mind that predominated during your life will come into effect and determine your rebirth. And then if there's no weighty proximate or habitual karma, then there's random karma, which means that um, if you lived this terrible, delinquent sort of life and you did one thing that was good, if you remember just that one thing at the moment of death, it's possible that that could propel you. (laughs) So there we are. There are great stories about karma, let me tell you a few, uh, two of them. It's not enough time. <laughs> One is this story of this man who um, made an offering to an arahant. An arahant is a fully enlightened being, and it is said that if you make an offering to a fully enlightened being, that 
this will have great benefit for you in the future. And so this man made this offering, but then after he made it, he had this thought, oh gosh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that, you know, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. And apparently what happened to this guy was, for 500 lifetimes, he, he, was, he was born a millionaire <laughs> because of the generous offering. But for 500 lifetimes also, he lost all his money because of that second thought. <laughs> the other one I like was told to me by a friend of mine, and I think I mentioned it here one evening after the talk. Uh, she was a nun in Thailand. And um, at this particular monastery, there was a monk who was apparently... Um, <laughs> he was very difficult to be around. He was very fastidious, he was very proud. And, um, um, and he went down one day to the, to, to the local village and was speaking to a wise person. And this um, Indian man said to him that in his past lifetime, he'd been a magnificent black stallion. So he came back to the monastery and he was just so full of himself, you know, and everybody said, well, what happened, you know, and he said, well, you know, I'm clearly on the up and up here. He <laughs> said, in my last lifetime, I was this magnificent black stallion. He said, now I'm a Buddhist monk, I've shaved my head, I'm practicing the Dharma, you know, it's like the sky's the limit, you know. <laughs> so everybody said, well, why don't you go down to the village and ask this fellow what's going to happen next time round, which he did. He went to the village. <laughs> And he came back and disappeared into his hut and nobody saw him, you know. And they pursued him and eventually found out what had happened. And he was told that next time around he was going to be reborn a tapeworm. <laughs> he wasn't very happy. <laughs> so you can see sometimes it's better not to know these things. <laughs> they could drive you nuts. <laughs> Okay. Um, in ending, I'm going to give just a few further examples of karma. I feel it's really important that you are able to carry with you a real sense of how enormous the ramifications are of this teaching. And I've been speaking here of individual karma, both within this lifetime, within this moment, and then over lifetimes, which we've just been discussing. A further one is what is known as a collective karma. So it now goes beyond the individual. And when I think of collective karma, the example that came to mind for me is a person, say, choosing to use alcohol in their life. So they use alcohol, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that it's good or bad to use alcohol. Not at all. But that creates its own karma of whatever sort. Then if someone gets to the point where they begin to use it unskillfully, that begins to touch other people. We know that with alcoholism, we are talking about a disease which the entire family suffers and which the friends of that family can also be touched by too. So what began as individual karma can become a family karma and a collective karma that touches so many people. And this is another aspect of the law of karma, this collective karma. Very important. This is a quote that I've read before too, that talks of, the, of, of, of this a collective quality. 
of life. The Sufis, they say, overcome any bitterness which may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one is a part of her heart. Each one of us is endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain and are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. <coughs> that we're not divided. That what we do, even on the karmic level, connects us to one another. And then there's what is known as national karma, the karma of nations. As many of you know, I was born in South Africa. And some of you are perhaps aware that at this time in my country, there is enormous violence going on. Black people are turning against black people. And the deaths have been something like 4,000 in four months. It's incredible just when things were beginning to look hopeful. And I sometimes think that the only level on which this violence makes any sense is on the level of karma, that there has been such repression, such division over decades and decades and decades, that maybe what is happening now is an expression of all that violence that preceded it. I think sometimes I was naive to hope and pray that things could be resolved there peacefully. If we want to know the past, look in the present. If we want to know the present or the future, look also in the present. And for those of us who care deeply about the planet, about the issues of pollution and division and conflict, violence, discrimination and abuse, the laws of karma as we know them in our lives can really make a difference in those times when it all seems so overwhelming and unworkable. Karma can make a big difference because we know then that every little bit matters. It can help in creating in our hearts what's been called the long enduring mind take us through those times that are so dark and that sometimes feel so helpless and hopeless. Every bottle recycled makes a difference. Every tree that is saved, every word of compassion in a moment of anger does make a difference. And so too also, if we're present where somebody is harming another, there is the possibility of responding to that act, not with anger, but with the deepest compassion. Because we know that that person is hurting themselves as much as they hurt anybody else. From the microscopic levels, to the broadest levels beyond our comprehension, everything appears to be so ordered. The laws of happiness suggest that in each moment of time, there isn't a moment of chaos, but of a profound orderliness. The description of karma that I've liked the best 
I want to share with you in closing. It's really simple. Someone once said that karma is a wind that is always blowing. What really matters is how we pitch our sails. <laughs> Maybe sit together for a moment, please. Siddhartha Gautama was born to the ruling royal family of the Shakyan tribes. They were in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in northern India. The future Buddha was born into the royal family and just prior to his birth, 64 Brahmins or holy men gathered and predicted that the child that was going to be born was going to either be a great universal monarch or a spiritual leader. This news troubled the king, King Sodhadana, because he of course wanted his son to succeed him on the throne. And after the child was born, uh, a wandering ascetic visited the palace. His name was Asita. And Asita asked if he could hold the newly born child, which he did. And he gazed down into this child's face in his, in his arms and started weeping. And the king was very disturbed and said, why are you crying? And he said, this child is going to be a great spiritual savior. He's going to be a Buddha. And I'm crying because I will be dead before he delivers his teachings. And the king was so perturbed by this news that he resolved that he was going to bring this child up in the greatest luxury. And this is what he did for the first 29 years of Siddhartha Gautama's life. He was brought up with great abundance. His every need was taken care of. And he was absolutely protected from every difficulty and every heartache of living. It said that he had a palace for every season of the year. And when he was 29, he married Yasodhara. And when his wife was very pregnant one day, he decided to visit a nearby grove to see the spring flowers. And on the way to the grove, he saw something that he'd never seen before. And he said to his attendant monk, Chandaka, he said, what is this that I see before me? And Chandaka said, this is a sick person. And Siddhartha said, am I subject to sickness? And he said, yes, everybody who is born is subject to sickness. And he was so shaken by what he'd seen that he went straight back to the palace. And a couple of days later, he endeavored to make the same journey and this time he saw an old person and again he was told that everybody that takes death is going to get old one day and this news shook him so much he'd been so protected from this truth of existence that he went back again 
to his home very perturbed. And on a third visit to the grove, again he didn't get there, this time he saw a dead body on the road. And Chandaka said to him, yes, everybody that is born is going to die, including you. And the Buddha was so shaken and moved by this information that he went back again home without getting to the grove. And on a fourth endeavor to get to the grove, suddenly a mendicant monk stepped out from the woods, his face radiant, his head shaven and just with a roll, uh, a bowl and a robe. And he said, what is this? And Chandaka said, this is somebody who has renounced everything in pursuit of the holy life, in pursuit of understanding. And the Buddha resolved there and then, or the future Buddha resolved there and then, to go back to the palace, which he did. He kissed his wife and his newly born son farewell and renounced everything and moved into the forest in his search of truth and understanding and love. For me it seems that the parallels between the first 29 years of the Buddha's life and the way our society has evolved in the West are enormously and poignantly similar. We protect ourselves so carefully from the truth of our own aging, from disease and from death. The same walls that separated him have now, it seems, become the walls of our nursing homes to which we send old people and the walls of our hospitals where people go when perhaps they needn't. When people die, their bodies are whisked away and they sometimes appear made up to be more lifelike later than they were when they lived. We have euphemisms for death. They passed away, they moved on. Youth is worshipped so much and age is shunned so painfully in the world in which we live today. In the Mahabharata, which is this great Indian epic, somebody is asked, what is the most wondrous thing in the world? And the reply is that everybody can know that those around them are going to get old and one day die. And what is most wondrous is that nobody really believes that that's going to happen to them too. <laughs> the obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away, while the birth announcements in finer print at the side of the same page inform us of our replacements. But we get no grasp of the enormity of the scale. There are five billion of us on earth and all five billion must be dead on schedule within this lifetime. The vast mortality involving something like 70 million each year takes place in relative secrecy. Less than half a century from now, our replacements will have doubled the numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. 
the Buddha exhorted his nuns and monks to come to terms with their mortality not to fill them with terror and fill them with fear and scare the living daylights out of them it wasn't that at all because that would really just be another prison, another bondage his reason for doing it was far different than that it was out of compassion and love and kindness that he encouraged them to come to terms with their mortality because with this understanding living with an appreciation of our death there is so much fullness and possibility and healing that is possible in our lives the healing into life that is possible in living with an appreciation of death seems to be so enormous and really in all religious traditions in all spiritual traditions the question of mortality is central to the holy life how is it that we can in a society that is so protected come to terms with this very difficult and central question well in the meditation practice that we do together here we are very directly confronting the issue of life and death in watching the beginning and the end of every breath we are witnessing a birth and a death we're witnessing the arising and passing away of sounds and sights and tastes and thoughts and emotions on every level of existence that we choose to inquire there is birth and death happening moment after moment where is yesterday? where is last month? last year? where is our childhood? the seasons come and go and it seems like in the last days we are already witnessing the death of summer as the leaves slowly begin to turn and the birth of fall gathers around us it seems that to live fully we have to be prepared to die fully Alan Watts, an author whom I'm sure many of you have read spoke of the wisdom of insecurity living with insecurity dying to everything that is solid is really the center of the practice and what is it that we have to die to? what is it that is solid in our lives? we have to die to our personalities we have to die to anything that is fixed in our minds we have to die to our bodies to our careers to everything that seems as though it's not changing moment to moment it's really hard it's a brave 
and courageous practice. And it's the very center of the meditation. Rumi, the great Sufi poet, says, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water's surface, that same head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. But the trickery goes further. The voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings, so you could burn them away one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go toward the light. Fire is what of God is world consuming. Water is world protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. It would seem that a life that does not include death cannot be full. The extent to which we are able to let go of each moment is the extent to which we can wholeheartedly open into the next. I've said before several times that I ordained as a monk many years ago. And the practice that we did at this forest monastery in which I lived for quite a long time was not the meditation practice that we do here. It's called the meditation practice on the 32 parts of the body. And this is one of many practices that the Buddha taught, ways of which he, with tenderness and gentleness, encouraged people to come to terms with this question of life and death. And what we did in this particular meditation was focused on different parts of our body, part by part, hair, the bones and the different fluids of the body and the skin. And over the months that we did this practice, the idea of wholeness and solidity of the body began to break down. And after a while it was just the experiencing of different elements, just changing this incredible miracle of the body, just arising and passing away moment to moment. There was a lot of fear, because when something that seems solid begins to dissolve, there has to be fear. But with the fear, there was also lightness and there was joy too. There was a real feeling that the truth was coming out into the open. It felt like a real celebration. Another thing that 
the Buddha used to do was he used to encourage his nuns and monks to go to the cemeteries, to the charnel grounds, not as some gloomy, morbid practice, but just to see and to witness the bodies in, in graves and the bodies being burnt, to help them compassionately and with as much tenderness and gentleness as possible to come to an understanding of this truth. For really what is true is that our life is uncertain and our death is the only thing really that is certain. And again and again in all of the spiritual traditions this question arises, this challenge to come to terms with the question of our mortality. Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, he said, death is our eternal companion. He said, it is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever we feel that everything is going wrong, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will, will tell you that you were wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. There is no need to see your death either. It is sufficient that you feel its presence around you. Last year I visited South Africa where I grew up. I was sitting with my mother who is here this evening in the living room of our home and my father called from the bedroom and we went into the bedroom, he'd been fine. And he was in the middle of a massive heart attack. I immediately called the doctors and we both rushed to his side, she on the one side and I on the other. It was the first time I'd ever been in the presence of dying. It was nothing like I imagined it was going to be. There was a lot of sadness and, there were, and fear but there was also great presence. We each whispered words of love and encouragement and appreciation into his ears and words of letting go. And I watched each of those breaths more carefully than any breaths I've ever watched before. Nagarjuna says, life is so fragile more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing that those who think that after an out-breath they will surely breathe in again, or that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. He died before the doctor arrived. And I asked the doctor, if he would let the body be with us, let his body be with us for several hours before they took it away. 
and we went outside and got some fronds of bougainvillea which were blooming and which my father loved so much and put it next to his bed and for the next hours we cleaned him and combed his hair and changed his pajamas and the sheets and held his hands as they slowly turned cold and we forgave him and kidded him a little too and meditated with him and said all the things that we'd not said when he was still alive. It was unquestionably the most sacred and beautiful time of my life. I felt so grateful and so privileged to be there. I felt so acutely the protection of the meditation practice and felt so prepared for this really difficult moment. I had to stay on for an extra month to deal with the funeral and with the estate. And I'd gone to South Africa to be with two friends who were living with AIDS. Roy died before I got there and Michael died soon after I left. So you can imagine it was, it was um, a very difficult two months and my own health was not good. And when I returned to the United States of America after having been away for two months, one week after I got back, I found myself sitting in the doctor's office in Northampton and was told that I too was carrying the AIDS virus. This was on July 9th last year. This thing that I'd feared so much was now a part of my life. In that moment, I took refuge in the community of 35 friends, who, close friends who had been affected by the virus, some of whom have died and some of whom are very alive. I suddenly found myself in the place that the Buddha had been encouraging me to consider so carefully for so long. I'd like to share with you this evening a little of the journey of these last 14 months. Of course I'd not choose to live with this virus, but it's now a given in my life. And I know that the lessons that I have learned would never have been possible if my life had been otherwise. The first days after the diagnosis were a real surprise to me. They were nothing like I would have expected them to be. There was this feeling of excitement, there was this feeling of anticipation, and there was even a feeling of joy. And I now understand what that was about. Part of it had to do with just the relief of finally knowing exactly what my position was. Another part of it was my heart protecting itself from the enormity of the information that I just received. But the greatest part of it was the deepest knowing that there was so much in my life 
that now would change with the information that I now know. And that is exactly what happened. Faced with the news that I now had and with the yardstick of my own death which seemed so close, Within a month, I ended my career as a financial consultant. It was a career that served and helped many others, but really wasn't nourishing and nurturing to me. Ways of being in the world that were unskillful and that were hurtful, either to me or to others, just seemed to fall away spontaneously. Friendships and relationships that were not nourishing for either myself or other people, just no longer seemed important and just began to fall away. There was this immediate sense of beginning to live so much more honestly and so much more wholesomely, both inwardly and outwardly. It seemed that an enormous amount of what was petty and unnecessary just had no place in my heart any longer. And really, this process continues right up until today. Death had become my advisor. And the other side of it is that I began to make decisions without the fear that it had governance over my heart for so long. The greatest decision that I made was to begin teaching. I'd been encouraged by my own teachers for many years to begin and for reasons of fear and feeling coy and shy and inadequate, I'd not done it. And now, these evenings that we spent together here and the other teaching work that I'm doing have brought a meaning and a joy into my life that I've not known in my 40 years. And I feel so deeply blessed that whenever it is that I'm going to die, that I will have known the fulfillment that I'm experiencing right here now in this moment. I feel deeply privileged and happy. It feels to me like a real healing into life. The first ones were also, as you can imagine, an endless succession of blood tests and hospital visits and x-rays. So many people and so much information. And I decided that in the fall I was going to go on a retreat for three months. And I did this at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. It seemed like a rite of passage for me from what had happened into a future that I really didn't know of. And the first month of that retreat was filled with such fear and such anger and such rage and so much terror. It was like this volcano went off inside of me and it just didn't stop. And I remember so clearly one morning, it was in the fall and the trees were so beautiful and I was out before sunrise and the sun came up and just took the trees and the tree under which I was standing was covered in these golden leaves and as the, t the sun touched the leaves the tree just dropped all its leaves on me and I just cried I just broke down and fell to the ground 
And these were the first tears through all of this that came. And I just broke. It was so wonderful. And I cried and I cried and I cried. And I cried for my father. I cried for my own loss. I cried, it felt like, for all the losses of my life. And it was like these floodgates opened and this great burden began to move through me. And that lasted for a long time. I was a real mess and I think the people that were on retreat with me probably thought I was a real case. <laughs> I would see a beautiful meal and I would cry. <laughs> it began to feel after a while that I was just crying about the sadness. Not my sadness, but just all of the sadness, everywhere. And I felt so fragile. There was no part of me, there was no part of me that assumed that the leaf that I, whoops, <laughs> that the leaf that I saw leave the tree above my head, that I would actually see that leaf touch the ground. There were no assumptions. I really believed that I'd not see the leaves of spring. And here I am seeing them turning again this year. I'd go into the meditation hall and I would look at these hundred people that were sitting in this retreat with me and you have so much love for these people. And I really felt a gratitude that I knew that I was going to die. And I really wondered how many of the people in this room are going to die before me without having the privilege that I had of knowing that I definitely was going to die because there was no part of me that believed otherwise. It all just felt so fragile. This is from the Diamond Sutra. Thus shall ye see this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. Feeling and knowing the extent of the vast change that is happening on every level of our lives, inwardly and outwardly, is the central teaching of the Buddha. And the extent to which we can be in harmony with this truth is the extent to which there is so much that is possible. And as the leaves kind of fell and the snow started coming around Thanksgiving, I began to have periods of such stillness and quiet of a sort that I'd never known before in my life. I really began to know and understand the deep and profound healing of silence and peace of mind. The equanimity began to ripen during this time and the joy in the heart and mind that there is with a mind that can be present with joy and happiness and rapture and have that same mind as present with fear and sadness and terror and rage. It is so wonderful. 
the maturing of these factors of mind. It felt like the deepest balm and the most wonderful medicine. And at the same time, there was another birthing that began to happen that was also new in my life, and it was the birthing of an appreciation and a gratitude for being alive that was never there before. I felt such gratitude for each breath and for being alive. My refuge in these teachings and my gratitude for them felt like this great glowing sun shining inside of me. And it infused my heart in each moment with so much love. And my mind would say that this is impossible with what you're dealing with. And yet it was so much the truth of that time. I felt so protected not from death, because I knew that I was going to die, but I felt protected by the knowing that really my own life was no different to all the change that was happening around me. And there was no part of me that felt a victim of the AIDS virus. I just felt that I was taking my place in the scheme of things, and it felt so free. But really the hardest lesson of all has been the lesson of letting go. You know, it's a word that everybody uses and we hear it so often and I've used it so much in my life. And really, it's the one that's proved to be the hardest for me. Letting go of the idea of a future and a long life. Letting go of good health. Letting go of abilities that were there before. It's so difficult. Some days it seems as though everything reflects what is not there anymore. And there's so much fear in that. And I'm really working now with trying to reframe what I've in the past called with the deep sense of loss that I have, rather looking at it as an opportunity to let go, an opportunity just to be lighter. There's so much freedom possible, just in that particular turn of phrase I found. And it seems that out of compassion and love for myself, I have to die to yesterday. I have to die to Gavin the athlete, Gavin the tennis player, Gavin the healthy and the perfectly able person that I've known for most of my years. So that these memories are no longer the yardsticks that I use to measure each moment of my life with now. It feels like a profound act of compassion. And really it's the challenge for all of us it's the central teaching of the Buddha. Accepting our infirmity and our aging, 
as the deepest and most profound truth of experience, dying to our history. There are times I feel a gratitude for this virus. Not always, mind you, so don't quote me on this one. (laughs) But there are times when I do feel a gratitude. And there have been blessings of, of this experience. And I would just like to, in closing, share some of these with you. My refuge in these teachings in the Dharma feels unshakable. There is a strength and resolve that in the middle of this nightmare I am going to find the deepest meaning possible in it. And that feels so strong and it feels like such a blessing. My refuge in community is so sure. What the Buddha called taking refuge in the Sangha in the community of like-minded people. I have so many people in my life, many of them new, who guide me and teach me and love me in ways that I never thought possible. The lessons of friendship and good spiritual friends have been profound and so nourishing for me this last year. And as I take refuge in this great web of interconnection that really unites us all and out of which none of us can fall, I know now what I knew a long time ago before my diagnosis, that when one person in this web has AIDS, no one is immune from the virus, that we all have AIDS. And my decision to share my diagnosis with you is part of my refuge in this community. It's no secret in any part of my life now. I've been taught really precious lessons of self-love in these last, in the, in these last months. There is an inner tenderness and gentleness that was never there before. With the difficulty and challenge, there just seems to be no time to waste. There's no time for the conflicts, for the lack of forgiveness, and for the inner violence that was there before. And I also know that there is a possibility for joy in the throes of the most extreme physical pain that I have ever known. And in the midst of fears and terrors and angers and rages that come and go too. And it is with sadness that I reflect on what it has taken to wake me up to these really profound lessons. But I guess that's the way of the world. May we all continue to do this dance of healing into life with as much dignity and love 
and with our hearts is wide open so that our path will be as bright and as light as possible before us. This is T.S. Eliot. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started. And know that place for the first time. Through the unknown remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flames are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. May we please sit together for a moment. One of the truths about the practice is that it is a very, very natural unfolding. And the willingness to move into areas where there is holding also brings with it the possibility of letting go because it is the nature of the heart that when it feels to the degree that it needs to the pain of attachment to something that eventually, spontaneously there is a letting go. There is nothing that we have to do to let go other than feeling what is so difficult about holding on. And so that is why there is profound possibility in experiencing life in its changing form. Because as we experience things changing, we also experience how hard and painful it is to hold on to what is changing. Because if you hold on to something that's changing, there's going to be pain there, you know. And then the letting go just happens. It's just, it just happens. And so, one of the ways, for example, like if there's a lot of attachment to the body, say, and, and one is feeling the attachment acutely, to try and be with, if it's pain in the body, that the, where the attachment is at. For example, if there's a pain in my knee and I'm just like so averse to it and so angry with it and so caught up in it, that is attachment. That's not accepting it the way it is. If I can go into that with a mind that is soft and tender and gentle and just allow that experience to arise and pass away and see it perhaps even microscopically, just see it, a birth and death, a birth and death, a birth and death, 
as we experience that more and more, it becomes less solid. And usually what happens at that level of witnessing is that it changes. It's the fear and the contraction that creates the solidity, that creates the pain, that then makes us think, oh, it's so hard to let go. And so a loving entry into those parts of our hearts and minds and lives where there's pain is really a movement towards freedom, a movement of letting go. Are there any specific sort of areas that you're thinking of, Lee? Mm, everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just feel like that's one of my biggest things. Do you know, like, when the storms come, you know, in stormy weather, it's, it's so free, you know, even if you can't, you know, if it feels like you just can't be aware of it, you know, it's just like rage and it's just rage. And, and I know that place really well. You know, if you just say, you know, it's going to change, it's going to change, it's going to change. You, you just throw that into the middle of the anger. Just throw it in. This is going to change. It's like anything else, it's going to change. All of that, if you... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.